Well, we began with the concept and event of creation, the Big Bang. We considered the mechanism by which creation continues to unfold the characteristics and potential of created stuff through the evolution. Then we concentrated on the biological phase of creation. <clears throat> it is now time to, I guess the appropriate word would be, confront the notion of original sin. And I apologize for my fading voice. We are about to look at ideas which are certainly opposed to the traditional thinking of original sin. It has been said that tradition can be the living faith of the dead. And that faith, excuse me, and that traditionalism, in other words, living traditional faith today, can end up the dead faith of the living. This can happen if that faith is not the best thinking of the day. <clears throat> which is exactly what we should expect from any institution which deals with ideas. It might be helpful to compare two institutions, the Royal Society and the Vatican, and the approach that each takes toward understandings in their field. As stated on their website, the Royal Society is an independent scientific academy of the UK dedicated to promoting excellence in science. Oddly, the Vatican does not define itself on their website. This may be a matter of perspective. They tend to look at themselves from within rather than viewing and explaining themselves to someone looking from the outside. <coughs> I trust that this does not imply that they are only interested in preaching to the choir. I have taken the liberty of defining the Vatican as the central governing body of the Church. Following its clear purpose, the Royal Society sponsors grants and awards directing research into areas that need further study. They conduct events and set standards for research and promote education standards for the continuing formation of qualified scientists. They publish journals of the best thinking of the day and are respected globally for their excellence. For their part, the Vatican does issue encyclicals and directives. These seldom, however, draw on the work of living theologians, but limit themselves, their references to scriptures, past encyclicals, or the writings of saints long dead. Just look at the end notes of any encyclical. Pope Francis is the first to break with this practice. The Vatican periodically conducts convocations of church hierarchy, but in the past has controlled both the matters discussed and the final reports of their deliberations. At times in the past, they seem to concentrate most on being orthodoxy police. They have little similarity to a professional society promoting excellence. But what would be wrong with that? 
As a result, they are missing an opportunity to garner the respect for their methods and conclusions in a secular society. This dogmatic focus is influenced by an abhorrence for uncertainty. There is an insatiable appetite for fixed formulations of beliefs that one can consider definitive and unchallengeable. It helps to have an extremely short memory of history. In 1277, the Archbishop of Paris condemned Thomas Aquinas as heretical. And now Aquinas is regaled as a doctor of the church. We certainly no longer support the church's past approach to usury, slavery, freedom of religion, or the sin of communicatio in sacris, participating in a non-Catholic service. The first bishop of Florida in the States, Augustin Varro, in 1876, had a slave. And the first bishop of America, John Carroll, had two. Dogmas must be allowed to breathe and mature as, a human, as the human environment changes, or should we use the word evolves. One of the successes of science is its ability to live with uncertainty. Little was known in the 19th century about electricity, even though we had electric motors and lights and even primitive radio communications. Richard Feynman, the Nobel Prize winner in physics, was addressing a group of non-scientists, and he said, I'm going to talk to you today about quantum physics, and you will not understand it. Don't worry, my physics students don't understand it. And the reason for that is, I don't understand it. Nobody does. It might be much healthier if we referred to all religious dogma as theory. Acceptance of a theory does not depend on belief in its truth or on belief in its empirical, but on belief in its empirical, theological, and philosophical adequacy. What then does contemporary, do contemporary theologians say about original sin. A first and major step was taken by Teilhard de Chardin. In his book, Christianity in Evolution, he says, it is no exaggeration to say that in the form in which it is still commonly presented today, original sin is at, a, is at the moment one of the chief obstacles that stands in the way of the intensive and extensive progress of Christian thought. Tyard was con a convinced evolutionist and explored the theological aspects of it. He found original sin to be the intellectual break, hindering any further theological progress. He went on further to call the idea of original sin, quote, an embarrassment or stumbling block to the well-meaning but undecided, and at the same time, a refuge for the narrow-minded. And he wrote that in 1924. In his book, Christianity in Evolution, Jack Mahoney states, quote, it would be more theologically appropriate 
now to drop it, original sin, as unnecessary and cumbersome religious baggage. This photo was taken in, on 1 December 2011 at a book launch at Gresham College here in London. You can listen to or download the text of the lecture on Gresham website, and a video of the lecture is on YouTube. Just search for Jack Mahoney, and you will find Christianity in Evolution and Exploration. It's a rigorous analysis of the doctrine. His purpose is to move beyond a defensive approach justifying Christianity and to explore positively the impact which accepting evolution can have on Christian belief and doctrine as a whole. Examining original sin without consideration of human biological nature before the fall can bring about distortions and even immoderate language. This is Pope Benedict XVI in his address to the general audience on 3 December 2008, in which he reaffirmed the existence of original sin, referring to it as a filthy river of evil that has poisoned human history. He had earlier described this river as injustice, lies, and lust, and all are a result of the fall of humankind. The comment clearly presumes the reality of original sin. And what of the Catechism of the Catholic Church? It says, quote, The Church, which has the mind of Christ, knows very well that we cannot tamper with the revelation of original sin without undermining the mystery of Christ. One can wonder what, operative, what the operative principle was behind this statement. Was it the best scriptural hermeneutics rigorously applied? Or was it the human tendency to avoid the appearance of changing one's thinking in the face of new evidence? Does this statement maintain that the whole purpose of Christ was simply to counteract original sin and little more? But then in a 778-page document covering the whole of Christian belief and written in early 1970, it is understandable that it does not reflect the later scholarship on certain subjects. <clears throat> it continues in the next paragraph, Genesis 3 uses figurative language, but affirms a primeval event, a deed that took place at the beginning of the history of man. That is not the general opinion of writers today and comes from a fundamentalist interpretation of the scriptures. Lest you think that I am overstepping my bounds of respect for the catechism, let me cite the words of Pope Francis. On 11 October, marking the 25th anniversary of the promulgation of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, he said, the Church must guard the deposit of faith and, and proclaim it to our contemporaries in a new and fuller way. The issues treated in the Catechism cannot be reduced to a mere resume of traditional teaching without taking into account not only the doctrine as it has developed in the teachings of recent popes, but also the change in awareness of the Christian people. And adds, tradition is a living reality 
and only a partial vision regards the deposit of faith as something static. The word of God cannot be mothballed like some old blanket in an attempt to keep insects away. No, the word of God is a dynamic and living reality that develops and grows because it is aimed at the a fulfillment that none can halt. And he concludes, doctrine cannot be preserved without allowing it to develop, nor can it be tied to an interpretation that is rigid and immutable without demeaning the working of the Holy Spirit. I suggest that contemporary theologians are today contributing to doctrinal development, not doctrinal destruction. Finally, Stephen J. Pope, in Human Evolution and Christian Ethics, published in 2007, observes, Adam and Eve stand symbolically for the entire human race at all times. Original sin was not a primeval event or deed, as the Catechism affirms. Adam and Eve are a metaphor, as should be expected coming as it does in the very beginning of the Old Testament. The metaphor predates Western philosophy by about 1,500 years, pre-science by about 3,500 years, and pre-hermeneutics by about 3,800 years. Why do we want to hold on to it so tenaciously? Make no mistake, we have seen a number of concepts or principles die or fade away. Limbo is a good example. In the cut and dried approach of traditional theology, which maintained the almost mechanical necessity for baptism for salvation, an infant who died without being baptized was destined to hell. Soon that just did not seem true when speaking of a loving God. Thus, limbo, a place of natural happiness, was devised to save face for God. This was scrutinized on and off since the fifth century. The Second Vatican Council cast some doubt on limbo because of the universal offer of grace to all humanity. The Catechism made no mention of it. On April 20, 2007, the advisory body known as the International Theological Commission released a very nuanced document originally commissioned by Pope John Paul II, entitled, The Hope of Salvation for Infants Who Die Without Infant Baptism. They concluded that there were serious theological and liturgical grounds for hope that unbaptized infants who die will be saved and enjoy the beatific vision. They then added that there was hope rather than grounds for sure knowledge. The reason for the hedge was that there, was, there is too much that simply has not been revealed to us. It seems that they were not interested in widening their research beyond revelation to consider the reasonableness of what science suggests. Officially, it is all still up in the air, but softened by faith and hope. We might say that today, the limbo theory is in limbo.
Another stellar example, which questions the finality of any encyclical formulation, involves the practical matter of freedom of conscience. On 15 August 1832, Pope Gregory VI promulgated the encyclical Mirare Vos on liberalism and religious indifferentism. He said, this shameful font of indifferentism gives rise to the absurd and erroneous position, proposition that claims that liberty of conscience must be maintained by everyone. It spread ruin in sacred and civil affairs, though some repeat over and over again with the greatest imprudence that some advantage accrues to religion from it. He continues, Experience shows, even from the earliest times, that cities renowned for wealth, dominion, and glory perished as a result of this single evil, namely, moderate freedom of opinion, license of free speech, and the desire for novelty. Thankfully, in 1965, Paul VI issued the Declaration Dictatis Humanae, in which he wrote, in all his activity, a man is bound to follow his conscience in order that he may come to God, the end and purpose of life. It follows that he is not to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his conscience, nor, on the other hand, is he to be restrained from acting in accordance with his conscience, especially in matters of religion. And then he continues, the right to religious freedom has its foundation in the very dignity of the human person, as this dignity is known through the revealed word of God and by reason itself. I stress these matters because it is essential that we see dogmatic modification or change as progress and maturing, and not as a threat to authority and a sign of weakness. In the context of our study today, I propose that original sin needs close inspection if our theology is to have the qualities of reasonableness and credibility in the 21st century. I once had a parish in the Florida Panhandle not far from the Alabama border. It was definitely Bible Belt territory. I was raking leaves in the front of the church and was approached by a young college student who was part of a missionary effort in the evangelical church just half a block away. I introduced myself as the pastor of the parish. We engaged in pleasant conversation, and he brought the conversation to conclusion by saying, what I want to ask you is, have you been saved? This is the key concern of evangelicals and others as a consequence of our preoccupation with original sin. Today we would say that salvation is more a matter of degree than kind. Are you saved? I know people who are worried about their relatives based on the assumption that you must be in the know and baptized to be saved. What does that say about most of the human population today, much less the 150,000 years before that? They certainly have not made their decision for Christ, which is the terminology of Southern evangelicals in the States. 
To put ourselves in perspective of all life on earth, if the last three and a half billion years of life has existed on earth is represented by one year beginning at zero hours on day one and ending today at the stroke of midnight, then Homo sapiens appeared on December 31st at about 11.40 p.m. All human existence would have transpired in about the last 20 minutes of that year. With 147,000 years between the first Homo sapiens and the Incarnation, God did not seem to be in a hurry to redeem us. Well, then what did Jesus die for? <clears throat> Here is one proposal. I call Jesus Savior, not because he pays the debt of sin, but because he rescues me from false notions about the Creator, assures me of my worth, opens my eyes to an ever-loving God, and invites me to share his paschal journey to the eternal, transformed life. We don't need original sin to need salvation. What would be helpful is some directive in our lives, a better understanding of what it's all about, knowing where I fit into creation, how I can contribute to the flourishing of human life during my presence on earth. That is, a new understanding of love and forgiveness and some hint of what happens after the transition of death, our resurrection. Jesus generously offered us that assistance. He saves us from ignorance through his incarnation. Why do we so often dictate how God thinks and acts relative to human souls? This is especially true of things like salvation. It is not a mechanical thing, nor a human thing, but a divine thing, and about that we are mostly blind. Yes, we can quote scriptures about it, but when we do, we are up against all the difficulties of language and how to extract the revelation from the words composed by the human authors in a different age. The Bible was inspired by God, but not dictated by God. Now that description of salvation comes from the book published in 2016, It's Not Necessarily So, although I always tend to read that as it ain't necessarily so. It's available in Kindle, paperback, and even audiobook formats on Amazon. Everyone I have ever recommended it to has thanked me for doing so. First, some terminology. Goodness is the ability of a thing to achieve the purpose for which it is made, thanks to C.S. Lewis. Evil is a lack of a good which should be there. It's a negative quality, or a good which does not take account of the whole. Burglary, for the person burgled, there is a sense of violation, loss, anger, but the burglar gets the goods. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, sin is an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience, a free choice of evil. 
Homo sapiens is the only entity which has a choice and thus can commit a sin. All laws of physical nature are relentless, infallibly happen, and without exception. Does creation have a moral dimension? Genesis says that it, creation, was good, but not just in a functional sense, but moral goodness as well, because of the relationship of Homo sapiens with the Creator, with creation intended by that Creator. The essence of sin is upset relationship. Can we be more specific about the effects of sin? There can be two models, an anthropological model based on guilt and punishment by God, who becomes the enforcer, and thus we must use metaphors and analogies with human activity to explain sin. Or the ontological, evolutionary model. Evolutionary because its effects, it effects a spiritual reality which we are here maintaining is a natural result through evolving complexity. Sin affects the state or condition of, the, of an entity, the spiritual soul. And that state is measured by how closely the spiritual being is identified with the likeness of the Creator. We sum it up with the word grace. The first model involves metaphors and analogous ways to understand offense and forgiveness or salvation. The analogies are drawn from human experience. The second, more adequate, deals with the reality of what we suspect must be the nature of a soul as an immortal, spiritual reality in relationship with the Creator. How that works out in practice is a topic for another study. Original sin became a term to explain the existence of evil in the world. It attributed it to an event, a human choice, which separated from the act of creation so that God could not be thought of as the cause of it. But we cannot separate anything from creation. In Genesis, the explanation was clothed in a, mem in a memorable and effective myth which appealed to an illiterate audience with no scientific awareness or curiosity and different survival issues than we have today. The Catechism explains that sin is an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. What can the consequences of that be? It is not immediately clear. A diminishing of a relationship is the most obvious effect. If sin is an offense against reason, then to teach something that is not reasonable is a sin. It may have been reasonable according to the state of understanding at the time the truth was formulated. But when that understanding matures, those who have the obligation to teach the best thinking of the day must reformulate their instructions or stand accused of sin. The culpability is one of willfully remaining in ignorance rather than knowing knowingly teaching falsehood, but neither state can be considered right conscience. An offense is an attempt to breach a law, something that is natural can be, and can be considered an insult. 
Here we must distinguish between what is physically natural and what is natural for a human being. Human nature is enshrined in what we usually term a relationship to self, to God, and to neighbor. Everything else about humanity is shared with other animals. Things like disease, pain, and death are experienced by all animal life, including Homo sapiens. We cannot think it reasonable that we consider Homo sapiens as ever existing on Earth in a state that was not the result of biological evolution, and so characterizable as having some kind of preternatural gifts. Traditionally, sin involves loss of grace. But then what is grace? <clears throat> the Catechism and the Catholic Encyclopedia seem to have been written in praise of grace rather than in explanation of grace. They read like a compendium of pious expressions. I like to compare grace to metabolism, which is the exchange of life-sustaining energy between various organs of a single body. Our theology insists that there is a unity of spirit, a single body within humanity, and is explained by the concept of the mystical body of Christ. The exchange is between the creator and the segments of what was created, humanity, and Christ in his incarnation is the revelation of that mechanics of exchange. In the physical universe, what unifies physical structures are the energy transfers of gravitational, electrical, and magnetic fields. What unifies, what maintains a relationship in the spiritual world is participation in the spiritual energy transfer between the Creator and all humankind, which we call grace. For us, trying to understand the nature of grace is like a molecule of a neuron cell in the brain trying to understand the rational thought it makes possible. In both cases, we can take the meaning of energy in that most basic sense as the ability to do work. Admittedly, grace is impossible to understand, but the Catechism doesn't seem to even try to explain its nature. Sin suppresses that energy exchange between us as an individual and our neighbor and the Creator. And at this point, we have to leave it at that. We should look at the impact of the traditional understanding of original sin. This is the analysis by Jack Mahoney in his book, The Making of Moral Theology. Moral theology became preoccupied with sin. After all, the first sin was our greatest obstacle to overcome. The emphasis on guilt gave greater importance to auricular confession, which developed from the 6th century popular monastic practice of regular private confession of sins. But then, to be able to both inflict and absolve guilt gives the Church great moral power over individuals. Auricular confession concentrated on the individual, and not so much on our relationship with others. I am concerned with my salvation and not my contribution, the contribution I might make to others 
which seems to miss the approach of Jesus. It became obsessed with the law, both God's and the church. Meet on Friday, missing Mass on Sunday, as if we needed to create more sins, when in, rea when in reality law, even God's, does not automatically answer every human query, but that for many, much of, the much of life is a series of worried, but what if? Yet moral theology became more and more an algebra of Christian behavior, which we could calculate in answer for any moral situation. In reality, moral theology became more and more divorced from the rest of theology and developed as a spiritual arm of the church's legal system. Sin was viewed more and more as a transgression of the law, which was evident in the juridical mentality of Trent. This direction of travel was encouraged in no small way by an abiding fixation of original sin. All this yielded a pessimistic anthropology. It produced moral apprehension by re reinforcing the strong sense of sin and guilt, along with humiliation and punishment used to drive that message home. The study of what was good in humanity was relinquished to other branches of theology. Much of this thinking was the legacy of St. Augustine, and we, consider, and we will consider this more in a moment. <clears throat> Mahani concludes, but the church was not born Augustinian. And although from 1500, for 1,500 years it has experienced something more than an Augustinian moment in its moral thinking, it now appears to be in the difficult process of shaking off its long Augustinian mood. What is necessary is to take an evolutionary approach to creation, seeing ourselves as part of that creation. In one of the physical le physics lectures I attended at university, the professor made a remark in passing that some think that an electron is a blue sphere. A ripple of laughter went through the lecture hall, as well as smiles on every face. There are a lot of blue sphere ideas floating around in theology, but we sometimes get the feeling that theologians are not so willing to smile at their blue sphere theories. A recent survey showed that there are 900 million atheists on this planet. That's about 12% of the world's population. Are these just throwaway generations? What would this say about the Creator and what the Creator demands of individuals? We are inheritors of Augustine's legacy. He died in 430, not at 430. Augustine analyzed original sin as follows. It is an historical event. The fall of mankind became so embedded with original sin that the fundamentalist and creationist approach to the scriptures was almost impossible to escape. Original sin became a component of human psychology and produced selfishness, disoriented relationships, and a tendency to violence which became deep-seated in the human psyche. Original sin also became a sexual phenomenon. 
Genesis had not made that association. Concubiscence and lust became the chief signs and characteristics of humanity's fallen nature, enslaving humanity in their carnal, self-centered appetites. But as the decree of the Council of Trent in 1946 made clear, the only way that this condition could be transmitted down through all humanity was through sexual promulgation and not imitation. It was Augustine who made this point about original sin. The Eastern Church did not embrace this idea. It was Augustine who insisted that a moral expression of sexuality depended, uh, demanded that it only be used as a means in propagating the human race and with as little carnal pleasure as possible. When I studied moral theology in the 1950s, the expression used was that there must be depositing of seed in the vagina. It almost sounds rude. Later, someone came up with the euphemism, open to the generation of life. Now that's a fine euphemism, but it's not an improvement on the, by way of explanation. If we give some thought, give it some thought, we can see how these things have influenced our image of God and what we think necessary for ourselves to save ourselves. This can be an uncomplimentary picture of God, and it is one that many, many in secular society use in forming their attitude toward religion. To be frank, sexu human sexuality has been considered in Christianity as a central moral issue and a major source of evil as far back as patristic times and especially in that Augustinian mode. Let's take an evolutionary view of sexuality. Let's see if evolution can offer a more constructive explanation of evil associated with this human faculty than Genesis can. For the first human beings, the immediate long-term survival issue was population growth. The threat was extinction through natural calamity, predators, disease, and the like. The evolutionary solution? A strong sexual attraction for population increase and intelligent problem solving. Early humanity did not even have to know there was a need for population increase, nor associate copulation with repopulation, although I expect they soon figured it out. The divine, uh, the drive was just there naturally, and they did what was natural, and they did not understand or need to understand the method. That situation proved eminently successful. They did just what came naturally. At the same time, they were using their curiosity and ingenuity to solve their daily practical problems. And they were just humans like us. Let me consider a current example. <clears throat> Today we are in the modern era of humanity. The survival issue is just the opposite, coping with population density. The threat? The threat becomes 
the stress of large population and social inequality, economic pressures of competition, mortgages, education, the global social needs which we can watch on television each day in our daily news. And what is the evolutionary solution? A strong sexual attraction associated with increased appreciation of love as revealed by Christ. Am I overstating it? Shortly after ordination, I went to a film. <clears throat> Can't remember the name of it, who was in it, what the plot was, but only one scene. A newly married couple were having their first heated argument. And wisely they realized they needed some arbitration. So they went across the hall of the apartment building to a young couple who had been married a couple of years, and they began to explain what the problem was. And as soon as the husband over there realized what was happening, he said, stop, stop. And he took them back into their own flat, stood them face to face, and gently pushed them into the stall shower. And then he said, now whenever my wife and I get into a heated argument, we get undressed, get in this position, and it's never been known that two human beings of the opposite sex can continue a heated argument for more than about a minute and a half. Now that was a revelation to me, even though I had studied moral theology for the previous four years. There is a contemporary human need for sexuality. It is not associated necessarily with reproduction. The sin against chastity would be not to use the sexual drive for its purpose in that situation. And we might add, they shouldn't have to worry which day of the month it is. Clearly our desires need to be directed differently in different ages and in different circumstances. Biological reproduction must not trump all other sexual issues. We are spirits temporarily manifested in a biological entity. Our immortality utilizes grace and not biological metabolism. One of the problems moral theology has is that we do not have a theology of pleasure. Pain is easy. It's the body telling us that something's going wrong. But what about pleasure? So far, moral theology has neglected this. From an evolutionary point of view, desire is this a survival mechanism and not a sign that we are fundamentally disordered by nature. For example, for individual survival, there is hunger, thirst, taste for food. We need, and yes, we must include, physical love and sexual companionship as a basic necessity. <coughs> For species survival, we need mutual, mutual assistance, government, companionship, social, modern, social support and compensation for the stresses of modern life and respect for our environment. Words like disorientation, concupiscence, lust and wounded are straight out of an Augustinian lexicon. What is disoriented in our, is our understanding of why there are desires. If evil is a disorientation of desire, then because this is part of our nature 
and only the Creator can change our nature, the cause is God and not original human sin. If desire is, has evolutionary purpose, then we rational persons are the cause of evil, in that we decide to use an evolved capacity in the wrong way. This evil is a moral dimension we make and not a decision we make and not a product of disoriented impulses lurking in our heart. No sin committed by the, our first parents wounded our natural and divine, our nature and divine revelation directs us toward right decisions. So what of salvation and redemption? Realizing that Homo sapiens arrived on earth some 150,000 years ago or so, to understand the primary purpose of the Incarnation as revelation makes sense in a number of ways. We wonder why God waited so long between the Fall and the Incarnation. This sense of urgency comes from the fact that because of original sin, there is a need for redemption, a Savior, for the Creator to wait until thousands of generations had passed before bringing that about, that redemption seems churlish, churlish, and at least, at the least. Without a fall, there is no urgency. What is needed is a convincing revelation of the fact that Homo sapiens is, by nature, a transcendent spiritual being, and in reality, that took a couple of stages to make convincingly. In the age of Genesis, there was activity, excuse me, there was active curiosity about evil in the world and the meaning of life. The revelation established that what was made by the Creator was good and had purpose and the concern of the Creator. 2,000 years later, the Incarnation demonstrated that the nature of the Creator is shared by human nature. It was natural for humankind. But since there was not yet an understanding of evolution as an integral part of creation, we had to wait until scientific minds brought that to light. We now know that evolution is an integral part of creation. With that understanding, we can see transcendent spiritual human nature as natural and not necessarily something ad hoc added to a physical body. Consider the notion of redemption in itself. Redemption can mean saving from error or evil, but it also means gaining possession of something in exchange for payment. We are certainly saved from error by all the teachings and example that Christ gave us in his short life on earth. He revealed many things to us during that time. The most important thing he revealed in the, is in the Incarnation itself, and it is that our human nature can possess identification with the divine essence through grace. If we emphasize the buying back aspect, <clears throat> then who got the payment? Was the Creator saying to the devil, 
that he would allow his suffering and death, the, the suffering and death of his son to buy back eternal life for humanity? This seems a strange situation for the Creator to be in. In the absence of original sin, there is no need for redemption in that sense. If since sin is, a, is an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience freely chosen, sin cannot change our human nature any more than it can change the genetic makeup or make it possible to die physically, which otherwise we would not have done. Sin is not a functional characteristic of created matter and thus cannot affect any property of matter or its complex configuration. It is a function of free choice and material that nature offers no free choices. In, <coughs> in Tyard's view of, of Homo sapiens, the soul, that is created stuff, Excuse me. It is Tyard's view of, of Homo sapiens, the soul, that is the essence of being human, is a potential of created stuff and can become operative only at the particular level of complexity achieved by biological evolution and then takes on an independent existence, immortality, while all biological life always experiences death. This natural origin does not make the soul any less spiritual. Human relationships are thus not physically based, even though their expression can be physical. The effect of a failure to conduct a proper relationship with God or neighbor is not in essence physical. It takes place in a transcendent spiritual level of the human being, and that is a separate issue to be addressed in another whole day's study. The important concept is that sin in the world cannot in any way affect the nature of mankind. Thus the concept of a fall of mankind, a modification of its nature due to a human act, is an impossibility, a nonsense. We can only exhibit the characteristics which are made, in, made possible by the nature of what resulted from the original act of creation and is enabled the, to function through evolution in complexity and nothing more. Thus, if evil exists in the world, the, uh, things tending to harm or unpleasant and insulting to human relationships, then that is the result of created potential, and it is to be expected. Admittedly, experience shows that we have tendencies to produce evil, detrimental effects. It is a co-op, excuse me, it is a cop-out to put it all off to original sin. Instead, where natural what were natural tendencies that promoted survival in primitive times become counterproductive in our current social environment. But experience should also make us smarter and revealed, and revelation should give us better directions and moral capacity. 
How does the continuation of the myth of original sin help anything? There is, however, a world of difference between the evil of natural physical events such as tsunamis or earthquakes and antisocial behavior or terrorism. These human acts have reason and free choice behind them, no matter how ill-informed. These have always been possible since the first Homo sapiens. They evidence responsibility, the ability to choose our response, and we can expect that this behavior can evolve and improve over time. But evolution is slow, not just physically, but morally as well. How much sin is there in the world? Can we escape the moral pessimism which developed a moral theology driven by original sin? There is lots of evil around, but we can make progress in its can we make pro progress in its reduction? It depends on whether you are taking that personally or socially. Aren't we capable of building a faith on that? Homo sapiens is the new kid on the block. The first living organism on Earth began three, three and a half billion years ago, while humans have been around for only about 150,000 years. If we represented the period of all life on Earth as a 24-hour day, then humankind has been around for the last 100 seconds. This should prevent us from becoming too pessimistic about human moral evolution. All evolution is slow. This is the time frame during which we can attribute moral responsibility. Of course, sin depends on, on knowledge of that responsibility. We should expect, in evolutionary terms, for such a young species that an understanding of responsibility would take time to evolve. Just as biological evolution progressed in a single-cell organism to blue whales, spiritual humanity must progress from nomads to tribes, from hunter-gatherers to agrarians, from kingdoms to democracies, while conducting failed experiments with communism or still undecided systems of economics and socialism. These also re reflect the way humans can relate to each other, and this means moral evolution. We need to distinguish between mistakes and sins, ignorance and mendacity, the idea, the ideal from the possible, and this is best learned through experience. Christians are convinced that the Creator has revealed the directions in which we must proceed and has offered motives for taking that path. Christians have also learned how to interpret that revelation, its limitations, and its area of expertise. We must not oversell its potential as many fundamentalists do. The scriptures are a product of the Creator's guidance and not dictation. In the 21st century, we do not need original sin to explain evil, the conditions we find human relationships in today. Evolution is a much more adequate and reasonable explanation. 
We are not a fallen race. We are a developing and evolving race. This approach does not change our understanding of so many important theological concepts. For example, grace is our relationship with God and our neighbor. The importance and value of divine revelation in determining how to use our nature, the why of human existence. The divine promise of life after biological death, immortality and resurrection. And the centrality of Christ in the divine plan. So much of the writings of Chardin focus on that key point. The evolutionary approach embraces all these traditional concepts. It simply makes these things more natural, reasonable, and believable. It is not the destruction of traditional Catholic beliefs. It is the further development of them. Genesis is not revealing that we first had a different human nature that we do now, nor was it explaining why humans die biologically. It is recognizing that there is evil, and evil is tragic, but there is hope, and we can compensate for evil by the way we live our individual lives. The condemnation found in Genesis chapter 3.14 are lists of things which make daily life difficult. A primitive nomadic people of a Genesis of the Genesis era could find consolation and hope in knowing that this is somehow natural, to be expected, and is part of the way the Creator decided to do things, in spite of the questionable qualities it might attribute to the Creator. It is through the sweat of our face that we eat bread until, the re until we return to the ground and dust. So just get on with it. And Christ added, Get on with it through love. It is these things which make it appropriate to refer to the sin of the world rather than original sin. There are many things that will need to be re, that need rethinking and updating when we disperse with, when we dispense with original sin. Updating does not mean harmonizing. Some ideas will have to be abandoned. A rigid respect for tradition, however, is no guarantee of orthodoxy or truth. A gen a Genesis, for example, is not describing creation, it is interpreting it. Pure science leads to new technology. The, physicists, the physics of electrical properties of crystals led to the invention of the transistor. But the transistor was done by the technician and the purest research was done by the physicist. The properties were discovered by pure science. The transistor has a technological advance. Theology is the pure science concerning religion. The spirituality is the technology of theology. The technologists in theology are those who step into pulpits write spiritual, on, write, on spiritual matters or direct dioceses. Good spirituality must be based on good theology. A major scientific step was taken by Teilhard de Chardin, who added the theological element to science. <coughs> Excuse me. 
There are so many things to be updated that theologians should love this. In the secular world, they call it job security. The surprising thing is that the theologian, theological conclusions that are reached will, for the most part, end up the same as in traditional theology. Only the cause or way we reach those conclusions will be different. Tradition runs into trouble when the scientific or intellectual climate is now quite different from the period when the tradition was originally formulated. You and I must be able to express our, our religious beliefs in the language of our culture. We need to be saved, not because we are born with a grave fault in our human nature, which makes us incapable of having a relationship with the Creator. We are saved from ignorance by the revelation from Jesus that we are good, we fit into creation, we can contribute to the flourishing of humanity, and it was Jesus in the Incarnation who revealed this. He did this by taking on the exact same nature we were born with, not one sanitized <clears throat> of original sin. And he offered the promise of immortality through his resurrection. We have traditionally called the mechanism through which this happens grace. Grace is not a quantity or a spiritual substance which can be added or removed or packaged in an indulgence like a toy in a kinder surprise. Often in the past it became almost mechanical, especially with regard to the sacraments. Rather, grace is a relationship of love which is nourished by our choices just as our love of another human being matures. Can't we please begin to see our relationship with God and neighbor through an evolutionary lens rather than one which magnifies sinfulness and the need for salvation? Salvation can give a personal blinkered focus on our spirituality. That is not the rationale, one, the, the relational one which Christ advocated. Plus, evolution is the only focus which brings which begins to evangelize secular society in which we live, and not just the choir. The reason there is something and not nothing, in other words, creation, however it happened, was to make possible a natural human engagement with creation in, a rela in relationship with the Creator. Our theology always taught this relationship, but left out the notion of creation, and its evolutionary mechanism. In the past, <clears throat> that seemed too much like science and not spiritual enough. Wouldn't it be exciting to have a parish or cathedral delegated, dedicated to God, the Creator? Imagine what architects and interior designers could do with that theme. Imagine, too, what the reaction we could expect from secular society. We would be talking their language for a change. We need to do today what Augustine and Aquinas did in their day. They drew from concepts of science and of the world that existed at, their at that time and used them to develop in the development of theological understandings. <clears throat> As Jesuit Father Thomas Rees, 
A columnist for the Religious News Service put it recently, quote, The problem with conservatives is that they treat the great theologians of the past as a treasure chest of quotes rather than as examples of how to do theology. St. Augustine, for example, took Neoplatonism and used it to explain Christianity to people of his age. St. Thomas Aquinas took the newly rediscovered writings of Aristotle and used it to explain Christianity to his 13th century contemporaries. The task of theologians is not to simply quote Augustine and Aquinas, but to imitate them, to take the best secular thought of our time and use it to explain Christianity to the 21st century men and women." We need to do that with the science of our day and update previous understandings. The initial creative act made possible a noosphere, a realm of the mind and soul. By continuing this progressive activity of understanding, we will be doing our share as part of God's reason for creating the universe. What has God revealed to us about, about this through creation? Revelation has three key concepts. Creation, incarnation, relationship, and resurrection, promise. And these conform to the scientific explanation of the created universe. Creation is not just how there came to be something and not nothing, the scientific approach, but why the theological approach, which science cannot travel. We don't expect to find, any, find out anything about how in Revelation. But Revelation, as well as science, does reveal that created things are good, fitting, natural, beneficial, and evolving. And we can build a faith on that. In all of this, we must speak the language of secular society. Evolution is a more reasonable, more believable, and more substantial explanation for the existence of evil in the world than original sin and the fall of mankind from original justice. What is more, Homo sapiens is the new kid on the block and all evolution is slow. In, evolutionary, in the evolutionary scale of things, we are just getting started and the evolution which is continuing in mankind is not physical evolution. We are not evolving extra fingers to be able to play the piano better. Ours is a moral evolution, a social and intellectual evolution, and it is under our control, a matter of our choice. It is a spiritual evolution, but that is also natural to us. This is an evolution at a different level. It is not an evolution of survival of the fittest and natural selection. It is a matter of a continuation after biological death of moral, spiritual entities, souls which have, knowingly or unknowingly, put to use their capacity to increase their likeness to the Creator during their physical lifetime. And that is what we call utilization of grace. This is the point of entry for the technicians, the spiritual writers who are trying to implement and to promote that spiritual evolution in the direction indicated by Christ. It can only proceed successfully by also pursuing the best theological and scientific thinking of the day. 
<clears throat> Creation is how the Creator works, does things. Shouldn't our image of God, based on our, be based on our best and most complete understanding of that, Shouldn't our relationship with the Creator fit the Creator's method of doing things? Evolution is clearly the Creator's method of choice. There is a non-creationist image of God. God is a true Creator of all things, not making or fabricating them as our creed repeats at Mass, calling God the Maker of heaven and earth. Why doesn't it say Creator? God is not a capricious Maker, Evolution ends up bringing into existence things that are naturally possible. The term Almighty God is an accurate description. Creation is certainly one almighty event. The act of creation designed every potentiality in that first creative instant. Evolution is what brings all that potential into fruition, best of all, Creation endowed the creator, the created being, with the ability not only to be, but to know and to love, which is the essence of the Trinity. I began this day with the observation of G.K. Chesterton about progressives and conservatives. <clears throat> Clearly the bete noire of these observations has been creationism, but creationism is a subset of fundamentalism. The fundamentalist firmly believes that if some traditional, that some traditional views are abandoned as inadequate for our modern age, then the entire fabric of society will inevitably collapse. Gerald J. Hughes, in his book Fidelity Without Fundamentalism, put it this way, the antidote to fundamentalism is not to fossilize our beginnings, not to insult, ins insulate our preferred features of those beginnings and then ignore the changing world in which God has placed us. The need for security, which fundamentalism seeks to satisfy, is better and more creatively met if we have confidence in the continuing guidance of the Spirit. The Spirit will be our guide if we faithfully try to use the intelligence and imagination God gave us to translate his word into the many languages of the world." Close quote. Christianity is, in part, a, religious, a religion of memory. Our past defines who we are, but we must also look to and build the future and beyond. The practice of religion cannot be static any more than human society is static. Spirituality requires the survival of art, music, philosophy, and theology. It requires quiet and regular moments of tranquility, reflective and contemplative moments. I hope that these thoughts have encouraged you in that pursuit. I thank you for being here and contributing to our search for a better understanding of creation, evolution, and the sin of the world. <clears throat>